Amen, amen. And that is the heartbeat of God, to see his name glorified. See all men and women of the four corners of the earth come to a saving knowledge of his son. God being glorified by people turning and trusting in him. Uh, For me, I came to faith in Christ at the age of 18. That's why I love student ministry in the heart of our church of making sure we're investing in future generations so that the gospel will continue to go forth and indeed God would be glorified. You know, if you've been around here for a while, you know my heart as your pastor that we are to be a people who are marked by the Great Commission. The Great Commission is the drumbeats that we pound upon as followers of Christ within the context of a local church. A couple of years ago, there was a pretty discouraging report that came out from Barna Research in which they polled churchgoers and asked them this one question. What is the Great Commission? 51% said, I don't know. 25% said, I'm not entirely sure, but I've heard of it. 6% were even unsure of the term and where it came from. So if I were to summarize the statistics from that poll, 8 out of 10 churchgoers have no idea what the Great Commission is. Now, if you're new to our church, if you're a new believer, you get a pass, okay? It's all good. Don't feel pressure or beat up like, good grief, I don't know. Well, let me tell you what it is. In Matthew 28, the very end of Matthew's gospel, verses 18 through 20, Jesus gives these last words in which he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I will be with you even to the end of the age. That is the Great Commission. It's the task that God has given to us as followers of Christ that we are to be about until he returns or calls us home. In fact, the Great Commission is what marks us as believers within, within a local church, that we are to be a people who are about making disciples. But did you know that the Great Commission is not just a New Testament idea? The New, Te- the New Testament, we see Jesus reiterated at the end of Matthew. We see it at the end of Mark, Luke, John, and even in Acts chapter 1. But we also see it throughout the Old Testament. In Psalm 96.3, It says, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Even all the way back, we see it in Genesis chapter 12. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Now, a couple of years ago, I, after a church service, we'd finished up and I was hanging around down here at the front and I ran into somebody and uh, one of our church members, and he, I had just finished preaching Matthew 28, 8 through 220, the, the Great Commission. And he said, you've already preached this twice before. And I was like, whoa, 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 okay. And I said, okay, I'm guilty. I like the Great Commission. I like preaching this text. But what I wanted to reiterate in the moment, I wish I had, is say, man, this is not just a New Testament idea. This is something that God has been about from the very beginning is he wants to see his glory fill the earth as the water covers the seas. And we know that day is one day coming. 
But we see it even there in Genesis 12. The book of Genesis, the word Genesis means beginnings. It's the beginning of the Bible, very first book. We see in chapters one and two, God's creation, where he makes the world in six literal days and rests on the seventh. We see sin enter into the world in chapter three through our first parents, Adam and Eve. We then see the consequences of that sin immediately in chapter four and following, where we see the first murder that takes place between two brothers. We then see chaos and violence and corruption so fill the earth and saturate the earth that God brings judgment through a worldwide flood. And yet God is faithful. He provides salvation through the judgment through a wooden ark with Noah and his family. God then begins to repopulate the earth through Noah and his family. But as the people and their, their numbers increase, they don't scatter. They don't fulfill the Genesis 1:26 mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They're not filling the earth. Instead, they do the exact opposite. They come together in Genesis chapter 11 and they seek to build a tower for the fame of their name. And God brings judgment because they're not following his call and command to spread out and go fill the earth. And so he confuses the languages. They break up into the groups of languages and then they scatter throughout. Chapter 11 concludes by introducing us into a man named Abram, son of Terah, who's married to a woman named Sarai. We see that they are married and they're living in a land that is about 700 miles from the promised land that is about to be promised to Abraham. Look with me in Genesis chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. The scripture says this, The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives in your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God's desire to fill the earth with his glory and bless every nation of the world is saturated all throughout the scriptures. He wants to do so, he chooses to do so by beginning with one man, Abram. Now this encounter here in chapter 12 of Genesis is so significant, it's repeated over and over throughout the rest of scripture. We see it in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We also see this passage cross-referenced later over in 2 Kings, Psalm 105, Isaiah, Romans, Galatians, and even Hebrews. You see, God promises that through Abram, he would make a new nation who would live in a new land and he would provide a blessing that will impact all the peoples on earth. This morning, I want you to notice in the text why this encounter was so significant and what this means for us. I want you to see first in the text, the call and the commission of God. The call and the commission of God. In verse one, it says, the Lord said to Abram. Now notice who's taking the initiative here. God. God is the one calling Abram out. God is the one who is calling Abram to himself. Abram was from Ur of the Chaldeans, a people who worshiped idols 700 miles from the future promised land to Abram. This is a man who 
did not seek after God. He did not deserve God's favor. Abram has no inclination towards the Lord. He's a polytheist in the Middle East. You see, Abram was not seeking the Lord. The Lord was seeking Abram. And beloved, that is what God has done with you. There was a time in which you were not seeking after God. In fact, we were similar to Abram. We were far off from God's promise. We were pursuing our own, our own desires, worshiping idols, pursuing sin and self. All of us, according to Romans 3, have gone our own way. We have turned away from the Lord. That's true for you and true for me. The human condition is that our hearts are continually wandering away from the Lord. It was John Calvin who said the human heart is an idol factory. We're continually looking for things to worship other than the one true God. But then God pursued us. God came after us. God called us to himself. He may have used a Sunday school teacher or your parents or a pastor or a teammate or a friend who told you the gospel and you heard and you believed God called you through them as means of coming into a relationship with him. This is what God's doing here with Abram. He is calling him out. He is by his grace, for his glory, calling Abram to himself. And beloved, that is what God has done with you. As we see how God here has called out Abram, would you rejoice today in your salvation? Would you thank Jesus that he has called you, that he has rescued you? Oh, I hope that you don't find your heart falling into this swell of saying, you know what, I've been saved, but it doesn't mean a whole lot to me. Oh, beloved, do we not see what he saved us from? That we were once dangling by a thread over the mouth of hell, and then Christ came and saved us. Oh, the weight and the beauty of what God's done for us in Jesus is that he has called you if you are in Christ. And yet, note in the text that the Lord's call, it includes a commission. Look at verse 1. Go. Okay, the call upon Abram was to go. He was to leave his family, leave his country, leave comfort, leave what was familiar. And he was to trust the Lord to lead him. Now, does God tell him where he's about to go? Nope. He doesn't know where he's going. He's just believing and trusting God. Well, Kenneth, how do you know this? Well, look at verse 4. It says that Abram went as the Lord had told him. Y'all, grab hold of this. The legitimacy of someone's faith is seen in their actions. You can say you trust God, but the evidence is ultimately seen in your life. Your choices, your words, your behavior, they show what you really believe about God. You see, you can say, hey, I believe God, but make no mistake, your life preaches far more than your words do. This week, I was reading in Hebrews 11 and was reminded of the connection between faith and action. And throughout that chapter, the, the faith chapter, where it says, by faith, it is then tethered to an action that is taken. For example, it says, um, by faith, Noah built an ark. Or by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice. Well, we see there in chapter 11, verse 8, where it says, by faith, Abraham. 
when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You see, faith and obedience always go together. God told Abraham, Abram to go, and he went. You see, when God calls someone, he not only saves, he also commissions. He sends. God has called you to go. You see, the commission of God to all believers is go. We see this in Mark 16, verse 15, when Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all of creation. We see it in Acts chapter one. Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we're gonna start a sermon series as a faith family through the book of Acts. And we see right there in Acts chapter one, verse eight, where it says, when Jesus told his disciples when the whole, that the, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The call of God is a commission for us to go, to fill the earth, to preach Christ and make him known. Just as Abram left behind his family, he left behind his land, his comfort, his security, and went, so too must we be a people prepared to leave behind family. Land, home, friends, financial security, consistency and rhythm of life. You see, for following the Lord, it means we've got to be willing to cut any strings that hold us back towards obedience. Question to you is this, what is it in your life that is keeping you from obeying Jesus? Do you have allegiance to your family first? Do you have a commitment to financial security first? Do you have this pursuit of a selfish dream first? See, following Jesus means we're willing to forsake our roots, our culture, our comfort, our identity, our family, our old way of life. Are you willing to forsake those things? Are you willing to forsake your plans for your life and surrender your life to the plans that God has for your life. If God called you to leave your career, would you go? If God called you to leave your home, would you go? If God called you to leave your friends, would you go? If God asked you to empty your bank account, would you do it? If God calls you to forsake your plans for your life, would you do it? Some of you right now feel a great sense of trepidation internally. I want to comfort you with the words of our sister, Corey Tinboom, who said, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. The challenge I want to place before our church this year is this. 
I want to challenge everyone to get an updated passport. Put your yes on the table and say, Lord, if you're calling me, I'm ready to go. You see, the farmer doesn't wait until it rains before he plants the seed. He plants the seed in anticipation that the rain will come. You and I need to put ourselves where we have planted ourselves by putting that passport out there saying, God, would you send me wherever you want? I want to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. I want to join you in your mission of seeing Christ glorified where he is not glorified yet. Of saying, God, I don't want to exist for my life and for my glory. It's temporary and it's fleeting. God, I want to give my life to something that lasts a lot longer than this brief temporary life. And as the world begins to open back up from the pandemic, put your yes on the table and say, God, here I am. I'm prepared to go. Maybe for some of us in this room, God may be stirring your heart to a call to the ministry. You're thinking, oh, I've got all these reasons why I shouldn't do it. If the Holy Spirit is calling you, would you put your yes on the table? Maybe for some of us in this room or engaging online, God is calling you to become a missionary of going to a place that you've never heard of, to speak a language that you don't know yet, to reach a people who have never heard of Christ. Oh, that God would do that in our church. I'm asking for God to do a work in our church in which for many of you, it means you're going to have to change your zip code. See, as much as I would love for us to have a huge church booming and blasting with thousands of people, Success is not found in our seating capacity. It's found in our sending capacity. It's getting the gospel to the nations. And for some of us, I want to challenge you, would you open up your hands and say, God, whatever it is, I'm yours. I want to follow your lead. You write the pen of my story, of my life. I'm going to hand everything over to you. You dictate my future. I'm done boxing you out. I'm opening up my heart and my life and saying, God, I'm all yours. Now, for some of us, we may not go to the nations, but every single one of us have people in our life who don't know Jesus yet. It could be a friend or a coworker. It could be a neighbor. It could be a teammate. And God has strategically and intentionally put you in their life to point them to Christ. And they may never gather here on a Sunday morning. They may never gather online, but they'll listen to you. They'll sit at your kitchen table. They'll hear the gospel through you. In fact, uh, Lord willing, next Sunday when we gather, uh, we're going to unpack this more about a strategy that our staff has been working on for several months. And it's a strategy we're going to put into your hands of how you can reach your community and your neighborhood for Christ. I can't wait to share with you the sermon next week about this vision of how you and I are going to lock arms and we're going to engage our community with the gospel. God may not be calling you to the nations, but he's certainly calling you to your neighbors. There are people who need Christ right now all around you. The question is, will you surrender your life to the call and the commission of God? The second thing I want you to see in the text is the covenant commitment of God. The covenant commitment of God. God not only calls and commissions Abram, God makes promises to him. Notice the five I will statements that God makes to Abram in the text. 
He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God makes a commitment to Abram that he will work for him and work through him to bless the entire world. God is so committed to Abram that he makes a covenant with him. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant, and I put this in your notes, is an enduring and binding promise between two people. Now, we see this throughout Scripture where God makes covenants with his people, like Moses and David and the people of Israel. And as we see in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and chapters 15 and 17, God makes a covenant with Abram. Now, the best example or illustration of a covenant in Scripture is marriage. Now, marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. Marriage is not a contract where if one person doesn't keep their end of the bargain, they can simply just walk away from the table. No, 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 no. Marriage is a covenant. Okay, well, what's the difference between a contract and a covenant? Well, I put this in your notes, the difference between the two. A contract is performance-driven, and you can't, it's probably hard to see up there, it is performance-driven, it is me first, it is you serve me, it is self-centered, and failure equals punishment. The contract, and if you own a home, you're familiar with this type of relationship that you have with the bank or the lending agency. You must perform, you must pay up, it's you keep your end of the bargain, for both sides, it's a me first mentality. If you as a bank don't provide the money that I need, then there's going to be a punishment. Or if I don't pay up on my end, there's a punishment for me. There's this mentality between the two parties of you serve me. It's a self-centered focus. And if you do not keep your end of the contract, it's broken. And it's a punishment that takes place. But this is drastically different than a covenant. Instead of a, being performance-driven, a covenant is relationship-driven. Instead of it being a me-first mentality, it is a God-first mentality. Instead of a you-serve-me, it's I-serve-you. Instead of it being self-centered, it's sacrificial. I'm going to put your needs above mine now and always, no matter, no matter the reason why. I'm always going to put your needs before mine. And if failure takes place, instead of punishing the other party, instead of punishing the other person, you look to Jesus who was punished for you. It's amazing to me that when God made a covenant with his people, they would continually fail on their end of the bargain. And yet he would look and point unto Jesus who was the punishment for their disobedience. You see, God is so committed to Abram that he makes a covenant with him. And beloved, God is so committed to you, he makes a covenant with you. But this covenant is not based upon your works. It's not based upon how good you can be. Jesus ushered in the new covenant through his shed blood on the cross. 
Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf because we could never do it. We're never good enough. And then he brought an end to the Old Testament sacrificial system through his death on the cross. You don't have to trust in your good works to get you to God. Jesus performed perfect works on your behalf because he knew that you couldn't. And he goes to the cross and through his shed blood on the cross, he has made a way for you to enter into this permanent covenant with God. This is what God offers to you through his son. It's not a contractual relationship that God has with you. That if you don't do these things, relationships off. He doesn't do that. God is not a God who says, you have to do what I say or I'm no longer going to love you. It doesn't work that way. He still loves you. And because of his perfect, unfailing love, it all the more motivates and compels us to want to obey, to desire him, because there's been a heart change. You desire to honor the Lord. You desire to keep your end of the bargain because of what he's done. But you're going to fail because ultimately we're not complete and full and with Jesus yet. So the good news is, is that when we fail, we can still keep going back to Jesus who went to the cross, who gave his life. The gospel is not only what saves, the gospel is also what keeps. Jesus keeps you and he's sanctifying you and he loves you and he treasures you. I'm not sure about you, but I still struggle with that. I'm still trying to learn, to grow, to understand the depth of God's love because sometimes I I feel like it's performance driven for me and I've continually got to keep repenting and returning to truth. I read this verse this morning in my quiet time and this just, it brought such joy and encouragement to me. In Psalm 149, verse four, the text says, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. I needed to hear that today. And maybe you need to hear that today. The Lord takes pleasure in you. Not who you are aiming to be because of your New Year's resolutions. Not who you're striving to be. Not your idealized vision of who you think you are. Just you. You belong to him. He delights in you. And you are loved by God. And he's not going to stop loving you. And though we're going to fail and not keep our end of the bargain He promises he's going to keep us. No one can snatch us from his hand. We are kept by the omnipotent grip of Jesus. This new covenant is a beautiful gift that's offered to us, and it's a free gift. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. Don't deserve it. It's just a free gift. You grab it. You open it up. You receive it. You say, thank you. I'll give you glory. Thank you for what you've provided for me and your son. You see, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Hebrews 8, 6 says, but Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. You see, the covenant we have with God is not based upon works, but it's based upon Jesus's works for us. So if you do not know Christ today, turn from your sin and trust in him by faith. Receive Christ Trust in him by faith. He will receive you. And when you bank your soul upon Christ, when you give your life to Christ, he enters into a covenant with you that will not be broken. 
He promises to forgive you and to keep you and to save you until the end of the age. You are his forever when you believe the gospel. But what's interesting here in the text, in this covenant, God promises for Abram, we see verse one, he promises property. We see verse two, he promises progeny. Verse three, he promises prosperity and protection. And through Abram, God is going to bless the nations. Oh man, grab hold of this, y'all. Grab hold of this. Through Abram, God is going to bring a blessing that's going to impact the entire earth, all the families of the earth, verse three. Okay, so Kenneth, what is that blessing? Well, as you and I, as Bible students, understand as we read all of Scripture, the blessing of God is not a what, it's a who. Ultimately, Jesus is the blessing through which all the nations are blessed. Jesus is the one that Abram is pointing forward to. If, you had, if we had time, you could fast forward to Matthew chapter 1, where Matthew lays out for us the genealogy of Jesus, and he connects it from Abraham all the way down to Jesus. That God is faithful throughout the ages, that through the lineage of Abraham would come the blessing. In Matthew 1.17, Matthew writes, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus. Y'all, the whole thing is rigged. I think I want to write a book one day and just say, it's all rigged. That's the title. The more I read scripture, the whole thing is rigged. God is always working through the minute details to do what he said he's going to do. And he promises to Abram, through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Well, ultimately, that blessing arrives in the person and work of Jesus. He is the blessing through which all the nations are blessed. That all who trust in Christ, we now enter into a covenant with the living God because of Christ. God promised in Genesis 12 that through Abram, all of the, a new nation is going to come and all the nations are going to be blessed. Well, Jesus is the true Israel. He is the true blessing. Jesus is the one through which all the nations are blessed. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. He says, you know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaimed the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. You see, it's through faith in Christ that you become a child of Abraham. You remember that song you used to sing in vacation Bible school? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you, so let's all praise the Lord, right arm. Yeah, some of y'all are already singing it. This afternoon at nap time, you're going to be singing it, sorry. <laughs> Through faith in Christ, you're a son of Abraham. 
the true offspring, Jesus, through faith in him, Paul says, Galatians 3, you're now a child of Abraham. You're now a part of true Israel. You're now included in the covenants through faith in Christ. You see, Genesis 12, 3 not only anticipates, it points forward to the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. The Great Commission is not just a New Testament command. It's an Old Testament priority. And so here we are as a church. Start of a new year. And it is essential that we stay focused on our highest priority. The Great Commission is the driving force of the local church until Jesus returns. And sadly, there are far too many churches across the American landscape that have stopped being about the Great Commission. And when a church no longer focuses on reaching people for Jesus and discipling them and teaching them how to obey his commands and then they go do the same, that's a church that's in trouble. It's a church that's taken its eyes off of the command that Jesus has given for us to be about. The way we say it here at Westwood is Westwood exists to invest in people who will impact their world for Jesus. This is not just a slogan that we came up with. We took this straight from Matthew 28, that we see the heartbeat of God and the focus of the local church, the mission of the local church is people. Westwood exists to invest in people. That word invest means to disciple. You, you pour into, it's discipleship. Investment means that you are teaching and encouraging. You're pouring your life into someone. You're, you're giving yourself so that they might know Christ. It's discipleship. Let me ask you a question. Who won the Super Bowl 29 years ago? Don't Google it. You don't know. Okay, next question. Who invested in your life and pointed you to Jesus? You probably have three or four names that just come right now. Let's focus on what really matters. It's a big game tomorrow night. There's something far more important that's happening through the local church. Question is, who are you investing in? Who are you pouring your life into? That mission statement begs the question, that it creates an expectation that we exist to invest in people who will. This is what we do. We, we have an expectation that we're going to be pouring into one another. Now, can I just give you some simple layups, ways that you can be accomplishing right now as you begin to build meaningful relationships with people across our church and through your small group? When you gather on Sunday morning, it's not about what you can get. It's about what you can give. If you come in expecting to get something for God to fill something, you're probably going to leave empty. Because as much as I strive to be a good communicator and a good preacher of God's word, I'm not always going to hit a home run as much as I strive to. As much as we try to provide music that seeks to make much of Christ and to meet your need right where you're at, you're going to be like, ah, that song doesn't resonate with me. Well, guess what? It's not about you. We're not singing to you. We're not singing about you. We're singing to him. So instead of showing up on a Sunday morning seeking to get something, show up ready to give. There is someone here today who needs your encouragement. Someone who needs you to say a kind word and speak life into them. 
I already had it to me this morning. I was talking with a teacher in our church who has had one of my sons. And I'm not sure about you, but man, school is just really, really stressful and difficult right now. My heart breaks for teachers. I pray for you regularly. And she said this word of encouragement to me about my son. And she said, focus on his character and the good things that he's doing and the grades will come later. And I told her, I said, that word was for me. I needed to hear that today. There's someone who needs to hear a word from you today. Maybe sitting next to you. You may run out to them in the atrium. You may meet with them in the small group building. There's people who need to be encouraged. I've yet to find someone who's over-encouraged. Never met them. I've never met, met someone where I sought to encourage them and they say, hey, stop, stop, stop. I've had enough. I'm good. We're all predisposed towards discouragement. Your self-talk will lead you right into discouragement, even depression. It's like in Psalm 42 when David says, come on, soul, put your hope in God. He's preaching to himself. All right, he's getting discouraged. He's listening to his own voice, telling things that aren't true. And you and I have things on social media and the world around us and people who say things to us that are constantly discouraging, like, oh, man, someone who speaks life and encouragement to you stiffens your spine. It brings encouragement to your soul. It puts joy on your face. It helps you to keep going in the midst of hardship. So when you gather on Sunday mornings, be looking for opportunities to encourage. I would say, secondly, look for people to engage with. Can I be honest? It's, a, it's overwhelming to show up to a church this size. It's a, it's a lot. And for people who don't like crowds and don't like a lot of people they don't know, they're introverts, this is overwhelming. So I want to encourage you, be looking for people that you don't know and introduce yourself to them. I regularly do this. I did it this morning. Walk up to someone you don't know and say, hey, I'm sorry, I don't know your name. My name is, thankfully the person today was a visitor and not a member. <laughs> Although that happens all the time. With a church our size, it's gonna happen. You're gonna meet someone and you're gonna say, hey, listen, I'm so sorry, I don't know your name. I, my name is, and they're gonna say, hey, I know. I've been here 15 years. <laughs> the only way this big church gets smaller is through relationships. So let's get over the awkward, okay? When you go into a life group and you don't know anybody, it's going to be awkward. It's going to be. You've got to be willing to fight through the awkward to get to the meaningful relationships on the other side. But I want to also say this, for those who are Westwood members, you've been, been here for a long time, please don't just come and sit and go home. We need you. Generations need you. Build meaningful relationships. Connect. Invest in people. But there's the expectation. Who will, next part, impact their world? Impact is driving us to evangelism. Discipleship and evangelism must hold hands. Sometimes a church will focus on one or the other. We can't do that. They're never pitted against each other. They always work hand in hand. But there's an expectation that as you pour into someone, they're gonna go and impact their world. Doesn't mean the world, because not all of us are going to go to wherever you're going to go. God has put you in your football team. He's put you in your classroom. He's put you in your neighborhood where you can impact your world for Christ. It's evangelism, opening your mouth and declaring the hope that you have in Jesus. Again, we're going to unpack this more next week as we talk about what it's going to look like for us as a church moving forward through the next five months or so. But learning how to articulate the gospel. Listen, the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is what you need to know to share the gospel with somebody. 
You know it, now you go and do, gotta go and do it. Who will go and impact their world. But why? Why are we doing this? For Jesus. For the glory of God. Jesus is our why. You see, we're not seeking to build a brand. We're not seeking to build a mega church. We're seeking to invest in people who will impact their world for Jesus. We do it for the fame and the glory of Christ. Because there's going to come a day in which all of our names in this room, we're going to be forgotten. But may the name of Jesus be remembered forever. Let's be a people who point to him. In fact, that's the impact point I want to invite you to respond to. Go where God sends you to impact your world for Christ. In Genesis 12.1, the Lord said, go. And then in Genesis 12.4, not 3, 12.4, Abraham went. You know, you are only in Christ because someone else obeyed the Great Commission. question I have for you is who else will be in Christ because you obeyed the Great Commission someone was willing to have enough love for you and willing to get over their fear of what you think about them so that you might know Jesus why don't we be a people that's all about the Great Commission why don't you as a family be marked by your commitment to the Great Commission? How about you as an individual declare with the prophet Isaiah, here am I. Send me across the street or around the world. My yes is on the table and I'm going to go.